Today we're going to wrap up Mark 9, okay, uh, and we're going to take a break from Mark during Advent. Uh, we're going to return to our series, uh, Messages from the Messiah, and uh, next week we're in Isaiah uh, for that purpose, and uh, I've laid out the sermon schedule for the early part of 2021, because I'm assuming there is going to be a 2021, I'm acting in faith, um, and I'm hoping it is much better than 2020 has been thus far, and uh, we're actually going to make really good time in the Gospel of Mark, so um, bigger chunks will be happening, so this should be rejoicing, so I don't hear you rejoicing. Uh, today we're dealing with uh, Mark 9, 42 to 50. Hear the word of our God. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Clearly a Thanksgiving text. Let's pray. Father, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. Uh, thank you for this enduring and reliable word. And as we examine it this morning, let us not forget that by it you examine us as well. Grant the Spirit to illuminate this word that we might understand it, that we might believe it, that we might live in accordance with it as it reveals your will and purposes. And we ask this in the name of the living word who took on flesh, Jesus himself. Amen. It was April. I forgot to write it down, but I think it was 2003. It was southeastern Utah when Aaron Ralston decided he wanted to go spend the day in Blue John Canyon doing a bunch of rock climbing. And so he made the mistake of not telling anyone where he was going. He just kind of headed out for the canyon parked his pickup truck, hiked seven miles, and began rappelling off of rocks. 
It was then in one of these canyons that a boulder went loose, falling and, oddly enough, trapping his right hand under the boulder. Pinned. The boulder too heavy for him to dislodge it and free himself. You see the picture that Aaron with his camera took on day three of him being trapped. Day three with limited water. Day three with limited food. Day three without phone service. Day three without anyone knowing where he was and the situation he found himself in. All they knew is that he wasn't answering his home phone and he wasn't going to work. Day three. Realizing that he had not had feeling in that hand for more than 24 hours and that that limb was as good as dead. He would be there another two days. He had a choice. Do I stay here and die? Or do I take action and try to live? That's a difficult place to be. That's a hard choice to make. I never want to be in that kind of situation. He's not the only one who has found him in that, find himself in that kind of situation. But in reality, Jesus says, we are in that kind of situation. As we think about this message of grace, as we, as we think about what Jesus has said about the fact that he's going to die and on the third day he's going to be raised again, as Jesus has been communicating this to his disciples as they've returned from Caesarea Philippi and they're about to make their way to Jerusalem, as, as Jesus has communicated about this, we have to wonder what does the message of grace and forgiveness mean? Does it mean that Jesus is soft on sin like the Pharisees implied? So let's take note of this, particularly from verses 42 as well as 49 and 50. This passage, I believe, begins with a transitional verse. And I say it's transitional because some commentators think it's with the stuff we did last week, and some commentators think it has to do with the stuff we're doing this week. And it does fit with both. Uh, This language of the little ones does tie in with that idea of (coughs) what Jesus has said, uh, particularly in verse uh, 37 and then others. It's a concern for people who believe in Christ, who believe in him and trust in him. But it also has a lot of language that ties it to everything that follows. Because it says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, and of course, it's not just little ones, but he is specifying those who believe in me, but whoever causes one of them to sin. Literally, the word that's used there is transliterated to what we call scandal. 
It's, it's a word that has to do with causing someone to stumble. It's putting a, a something in their way that will cause them to stumble or that will hinder their progress, that will trip them up. Another aspect of this word is that it can be used to um, cause someone to distrust or desert someone else. And so Jesus, Jesus is very concerned about the little ones who trust him, that there's not someone putting something in their way so that they're tripped up as they try to follow him. So they're not blocked and then going in a different direction and leaving the path and not following Jesus. That's what he's getting at. Now this could be an example, or, or what this can mean, for instance, is what we read in Deuteronomy 13. False teaching that entices them to leave the faith in following Jesus to follow another God. It can be similar to what we find in Romans 14, which is why we had that read this morning, where you're, you're presenting something to someone, uh, getting them to violate their conscience. Uses that word there in Romans 14, stumbling block, doesn't it? It can be tempting someone to actually sin, not simply violate their conscience, but something that is clearly against the will and law of God. Those are some of the stumbling blocks that people can present to others who believe in Christ. And what Paul gets at in Romans 14 is the idea that, that you can destroy the faith of another by your actions. Jesus does not take this lightly. We have this radical statement from the, the lips of Jesus it would be better for that person if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. And so while Jesus is gentle, while Jesus is lowly, we also see that that does not mean that Jesus doesn't care about sin. The gentle and lowly Jesus so loves his children that he has the harsh word of righteous judgment against those who cause them to stumble, who scandalize them. A great millstone, one of the big millstones, one of the millstones like this one where usually it's an animal that treads it and the, the weight of the millstone is used to crush grain, to make flour, okay? Not just throwing someone in the sea, but putting one of those things that you can't even lift around your neck so that you are pulled to the bottom of the sea. Jesus says that is better than what is in store for them. That is a hard word from Jesus. And we can't avoid the hard words from Jesus. But they're going to be drowned. 
And if you've never read the book Perfect Storm, I encourage you sometime. I know some of you aren't readers. Uh, but it, it, he, the author brings you in all these unexpected directions, uh, like what it's like to do training for water rescue. So I, I find it fascinating because you learn about so many things. It's not just the history of a storm and what happened to guys on this one boat, uh, but it's all of this other background material and some of the background material that uh, Sebastian Young does is talks about drowning. So there's like three pages about drowning, particularly about how horrible a death it is. There's a reason most of us fear drowning, precisely because it's a horrible death. And Jesus' disciples would be, they'd be down with that. They'd understand that, not just because some of them were fishermen and, and probably had known people who had drowned, but also they knew most likely of Judas of Galilee. He, of course, was a false messiah. He tried to raise an insurrection in 46 BC. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, seems to indicate that this was the manner in which he was punished. A millstone was placed around his neck, and he was tossed into the sea of Galilee. Why does Jesus have to say this? I think Jesus has to say this precisely because we tend to minimize the damage that sin does. The damage that sin creates within the covenant community. We, we tend to minimize the hurt that we cause other people when we place these stumbling blocks in front of them. I'm not talking about the incidental sin, so to speak, that's going to happen. But this is purposeful. This is, this is sin that is, that is intended to lead people astray. To do damage to them. And we tend to minimize this. And Jesus doesn't minimize it. Jesus is honest about the severity of it in this passage. If we jump down to <coughs> um, 49, we have this strange phraseology. And this is sort of a, a gear shift, but I think it's all connected in my head anyway. Um, everyone will be salted with fire. And so uh, Jesus here is talking about, I think, something else that we're minimizing. We, we tend to minimize the need for holiness. And, and Jesus is contrasting the fires of hell with the fire of a living sacrifice, so to speak. Because as we see from Leviticus, uh, salt was a part of a number of sacrifices. Leviticus 2, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering, with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Remember, those offerings were eaten. They were intended to be tasty. So part of what Jesus is getting at is, is everyone's going to experience fire. Some will experience, as we're going to see, the fire of wrath and judgment, and some will experience the fire of purification. 
because they're going to be living sacrifices. In other words, Jesus takes your holiness so seriously that you will experience the purification of fire, not in purgatory, but on earth, so that you become a more holy person while you're still on earth. The Roman Christians, Mark believed, needed to know this, that they were going to be purified by the persecution they, would they were probably experiencing at this point at the hands of Nero, and they would experience from other Caesars in the future. That the Roman Christians and all Christians afterward would be purified by, by persecution if they're living sacrifices. It affects their witness. Jesus warns them, salt is good. That's not the warning. Although, salt is bad for me, as someone with hypertension. I've got to use the alternative sources of salt now. I've got to like that Himalayan stuff and that sea salt and stuff. But he says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness... Remember, they, they, they didn't have the factories we have now, and some of the salt that came out of the, out of the Red Sea, or sorry, the Dead Sea, <coughs> wasn't pure salt. It would look like salt, but it wasn't salty. It wouldn't preserve anything, and it really, really wouldn't seize anything. But he's saying, if, if a salt has lost its saltiness, how can it regain it? If a Christian has lost his holiness, what next? is the idea. And so we can, by, by the message of grace, and the problem is not the message of grace, the problem is us who twist it, uh, but we can minimize Jesus' commitment to the holiness of the covenant community. We can minimize the need to make sure that we aren't presenting stumbling blocks, but helping each other make progress, edifying one another, but also that we are not putting in obstacles in the way of our witness. What is Jesus getting at here is, I believe, sin's dangerous power that kills witness and community. So when we think about this message of grace and forgiveness, does it mean that Jesus is soft on sin? no because he talks about sin's dangerous power that kills witness and community. And that's not all he says. How else does Jesus declare the danger of sin? And we see this in 43 to 48. He starts off, if your hand causes you to sin. Then he goes to, if your foot causes you to sin. And then, if your eye causes you to sin. First off, let's note, he, said, he uses this phraseology three times, that beautiful Hebrew way of expressing um, through repetition the seriousness of a matter. Okay. Holy, holy, holy. So Jesus is saying this is most important that they get this. 
He uses different body parts, as we're going to see. But again, this, this phrase, causes to sin, is that word that we saw back in verse 42. Scandalize, cause to stumble, place a hindrance. In other words, Jesus is emphasizing the danger of sin which so easily entangles us, as it says in Hebrews 12.1, and therefore entangled causes us to stumble and fall. I was reading commentaries. There, there was one commentator who mentioned a different commentator who I'd never heard of before. And he points to some extra um, biblical rabbinical writings, some later rabbinical writings. And someone had said that uh, the use of uh, child, hand, foot, and eye were used uh, to describe different kinds of sexual sin. Well, I'm not sure that the original audience, the Romans, uh, the Christians in Rome, would have gotten that extra biblical, rabbinical stuff. I don't think that's what he's, Jesus is getting at here. Certainly not limiting himself to this. But with our hands, we steal. With our hands, we kill. That's what he's getting at. He's getting at theft. With our eyes, we see and covet all manner of things. Proverbs 1, verses 15 and 16, note for us, if we're, if we're struggling with how do, our foot, how do our feet cause us to stumble, uh, the Proverbs say, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Your feet can carry you to places where you intend to commit sin. Proverbs 6 gets even better, so to speak. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. He winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. With a perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. And every time I read this, I can't help but think of the old Monty Python sketch with, when they're on the park bench and Eric Idle is, you know what I mean? Say no more, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He's enticing someone to sin. In that skit. And in this passage. What does Jesus say about what you should do? He says that if your hand is what causes you to stumble, cut it off. If it's your foot, cut it off. If it's your eye, tear it out. This is a radical sort of approach, isn't it? But it's addressing the reality of sin's dangerous power in our lives. The reason why it's so dangerous is because of what Jesus says next. Sin's deadly 
penalty. Jesus makes a, a series of contrasts. It's better to enter life crippled than to go to hell. It's better to be lame, uh, sorry, to enter life lame than to be thrown into hell. It's better to enter the kingdom with only one eye than to be thrown into hell. So just notice how he shifts what he says at times to kind of emphasize and and, uh, fill out some of these ideas. The basic idea, though, is that your limb is not worth your life. The kingdom of God is more valuable than a body part. And so let's get back to Aaron Ralston sitting there with his dominant hand pinned beneath a boulder. And what do you think he has to do? He has to break his arm. And then, for some reason, he has a dull pocket knife. I would think someone who was always in the outdoors like him, and that was his job. He worked in, uh, he, had a, he had a degree from, I think, Harvard. And uh, here he is working in uh, one of these uh, trail outfitting places. I thought he'd have a sharp knife, but he had a dull knife. And he had to remove the arm where he'd broken it or die. And so he did. He broke it. He cut it. He put a a tourniquet on it so he wouldn't bleed out. And, you know, that's not all that he had to do to save his life because now uh, bleeding and um, dehydrated from not having water for five days or enough water for five days, hungry, famished and weak because he really hadn't eaten all that much in five days, he had to, with one arm, rappel another 65 feet down to the base of the rock and then hike out the seven miles and thankfully someone, he came across other hikers who assisted him um, almost all the way back. But still think of that. Think of the power, the will to live that is expressed there. Now, is Jesus really saying, hack off your limbs to be holy? No. He is using, I think, some hyperbolic speech. Okay? It's similar to, or it captures, it's intended to capture the idea that John Owen brings out in his book on the mortification of sin, that reality that we need to be killing sin before it it is killing us. We are to be radical and, and, and not pamper our desires and temptations, but rather to be ruthless with our desires and temptations. Because the sin is not the hand, the sin is not the foot, the sin is not the eye. But we need to be ruthless with our fallen desires. Because of the deadly penalty. Jesus speaks of uh, Gehenna, that's uh, the Hebrew word that's used, and I'm uh, sorry, the, the Greek word that's used, that's a transliteration of the Valley of Hinnom, which had earlier been a place where sacrifices were made, 
um, sacrifices of children. A place that had been turned, it was desecrated and turned into a dump. And the fire didn't go out. And so it became a picture for the, the early Jewish Christians of the lake of fire that we see in Revelation 9, uh, 20. But Jesus speaks about the fact that this has an unquenchable fire. It's a fire that doesn't go out. It's a fire that can't go out. It's a fire that keeps burning. But then he quotes from Isaiah 66, where it talks about the worm that does not die, and probably a better way of uh, expressing that is the worm that doesn't stop feeding. There's always something to feed on for these worms, as well as the fire that is not quenched. And in Isaiah 66, uh, it is about judgment, about the penalty for sin in Isaiah 66. So Jesus is affirming what is said in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus believes, knows this reality. This reality of everlasting, continual judgment on sinners. And we can quibble about whether it's really a fire. I think the reality is worse. It's not going to be like the TV show, The Good Place where there was an alternate version of the bad place where the frozen yogurt gave you diarrhea every day, where you had to put up with the annoyances of all the people who, uh, who still were sinners, uh, kind of their worst annoying traits. They're, they're putting up with the idiosyncratic behavior of other people who can't make decisions or are full of themselves or anything else. That's, that's not what Jesus is getting at. We are to believe in the reality of the final judgment. We are to believe in the reality of eternal punishment, not annihilationism. We are to believe in these things because Jesus knew them and taught them to his disciples. That's not merely hyperbole. Why do we have to talk about this? Part of the reason why we need to talk about this is because Satan, since the garden, has been minimizing the deadly penalty of sin so that people don't flee it. Like animals flee a raging forest fire. Sin does indeed bring fleeting pleasure. Key word there is Fleeting. Sin deceives us about its true end, which is our destruction. Sin does bring us some matter of matter uh, measure rather of satisfaction, at least in the moment. But you know, coming up behind, there's an enormous bill to be paid. 
and sin's deadly penalty threatens to kill us. Which leads us to our last question. So what can be done? Well, if we go to Genesis 4, we recognize that, you know, here's Abel. Oh, sorry, Cain. Abel's the good, the good son. <laughs> Cain's the bad son. But there's Cain who's mad at Abel because he, he's envious and he's jealous and he's filled, so he's filled with anger. And God comes to him, and, and now notice this. See the patience of God with sinners. He comes not to place a stumbling block in the place of Cain, but to point him in the right direction and to warn him about the deadly penalty of sin as well as its dangerous power. And he speaks of sin as crouching outside of his door, waiting for him to come out so that sin might pounce upon him and destroy him. Sin is a predator waiting to kill you that you are no match for. You don't have a gun that can kill it. There's no trap you can trap it in. You can't win when you fight sin. Jesus is saying these harsh words in order to shock those people who think that they still have a fighting chance against that predator. The Roman Christians should have been familiar with this, or soon they would be, because they would be tossed in with wild animals and wouldn't have a fighting chance. You don't have a fighting chance against sin, brothers and sisters. There's no hope of self-salvation. There's no hope of, of thinking your way out of it. You can't scheme your way out. You can't power your way through. Willpower will not do it. We have to go back to places like Romans 6. Well, that's part of why we had it in our community Bible reading this week. Romans 6, which, which speaks about the reality that because we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, we are united to his death to sin by faith. That Jesus took on the likeness of human flesh in order that sin might be condemned in his death. And so the death we deserve, the, uh, the, not just the physical death, but the reality of the everlasting death has been borne by Jesus and therefore for us. It's taken place. The judgment has been rendered. We have been condemned and we've already experienced the condemnation in Christ's condemnation for us. But Christ also was raised from the dead. And so because we're united to him, we also participate in that resurrection so that we've been raised by the power of the Spirit through the indwelling Spirit to a newness of life. 
We no longer have an obligation to listen to the cries of temptation from indwelling sin within us. You don't have to say yes anymore. Is what Paul is getting at. And instead of offering your members, which would be your hands, your eyes, your feet, instead of offering your members to unrighteousness, he says, reckon yourself as dead to sin and offer those members for righteousness. As John Stott has noted, that a lot of sanctification takes place in the mind, how you think. Changing how you think on the basis of Christ's work. Then we get to Romans 8, where there's this this great logic of you belong to Christ, right? Well, if you belong to Christ, He dwells in you by the Spirit. And because you have the Spirit in you, you're able to walk according to the Spirit as opposed to walking according to the flesh. And part of what it means to to walk according to the Spirit is to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Gentleness, holiness, self-control, joy, peace, love. Instead of setting your mind on the things of the flesh, the factions, the sensuality, the greed, and all of these things. And, Being led by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. He uses later in Romans 13 kind of a shorthand in this sentence. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, like you put on a robe, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. When it, when it raises its ugly head in the power of the Spirit, not out of self-will or you know, self-control, you, but able to say no. Not going to gratify you today. Not going to follow you today. And so, what does this look like? Well, part of what this looks like is fleeing temptation. When temptation is from outside of you, learning how to run away. Brave Sir Robin ran away. Sometimes that's a good thing. Because you know you can't beat the dragon. And so you run from the dragon. This idea of amputation that Jesus talks about can take a number of forms. Uh, I was joking uh, with the men's ministry the other night that for for, uh, Francis of Assisi, when sexual desire arose in him, uh, which, of course, he was single, so it's not like he could do anything about it, he would cast himself naked into the snow or into the thorn bushes if there was no snow. (laughs) And there are times that we need to flee, to distract so that we're not gratifying the desires of the flesh. Don't stir up the desires of the flesh. Catalogs. They're almost a thing of the past, but they're not quite a thing of the past. But you know, why do they send you a catalog? 
because they want you to buy stuff. They stir up covetous desires within you. Even if it's the covetous desire for good books of theology. I don't get CBD catalogs because that's what I used to do. It was like, this is before I was a pastor, but it's like pastor porn. You go through and you like circle all the, well, that's a great looking commentary. You know, you circle all the ones that you want to buy, you know. But it's not just CBD catalogs. It can be any kind of catalog. But it stirs up covetousness. Stirs up discontentment that now I must have more of, and I won't say guitars for Cole. So. I know that desire. I was in Guitar City, uh, Guitar Center the other day to get uh, classical guitar strings for Jaden, which I still need to put on the guitar because someone wants her to learn how to play. We'll see how this goes. Um, and you know, I haven't picked up my guitar really, seriously, since like January. But there I am going, I want to go into the acoustic guitar room. I want to see if they have one of these really nice left-handed uh, electric acoustics to play. What a fool I am. Well, I didn't go in. I said no. I don't have to go in there. I'm not buying anything. I don't need to stir it up. What I do need to go home, do is go home to my guitar and play it. Turn off the TV. Or perhaps record things so you go through the commercials that are trying to stir up desire or trying to sell you drugs. Um, using filters on your internet so that you're not finding yourself in the wrong places at the wrong times. There are a number of ways that this can take place, but what I really want to get down to is the um, rejection. The, well, the, first the recognition that, that the desire is sinful and then the rejection of that desire and a running away from it. So recognize... Here we go. Didn't even plan on this. Recognize, <laughs> reject, and run. Here's your three R's for today. But temptation works precisely because of the reality of indwelling sin. It's not resolved simply by chopping off your hand or plucking out your eye. Aaron Ralston physically lived but that doesn't mean Aaron Ralston was a holy person. His marriage lasted two years. He got arrested for domestic abuse. Hasn't worked out all that well for Aaron thus far. There's still hope for him. But where Jesus goes at the very end of this passage is an interesting place because he says, be at peace with one another. Part of putting sin to death is pursuing peace. And pursuing peace is part of putting sin to death. Don't think that you're pursuing holiness when you're alienated from everybody. Because holiness is about love. 
Not about being right about everything. Holiness is about peace. Being able to live with people. As opposed to putting stumbling blocks in front of people. Humble holiness will attract people. It will produce witness. Because of a godly community, a godly loving community. Legalism, on the other hand, will build walls that prevent witness. It will build walls that prevent community from taking place. And so if we're looking for someone to slay our sin, Jesus is the only sin slayer who can save us. And it's only through that death of that resurrection that now that uh, indwelling Holy Spirit uh, that sin begins to die in our lives. So if we take all of this together, we see that Jesus slays sin, which threatens our lives, which threatens our witness, and threatens our community. As I noted, Aaron uh, Ralston is alive today. And uh, he's probably fairly well off financially because of uh, the book and movie rights. If you ever want to see the story, 127 hours um, with uh, James Franco playing him. He had to take the threat to his life seriously. And Jesus does want us to take the threat to our lives from sin seriously. Sin does ruin our witness. Sin does ruin our relationships. Sin does bring us into the danger of the unstoppable fires of judgment. Only Jesus can slay sin before it slays you. Only Jesus can give you hope. This is why He died. This is why He rose again from the dead in order to pay the penalty of sin and to put sin to death and to give us life through His Spirit. And this life that we we experience in the Spirit means that we make war on sin. Not only does it make war on us, but we make war back. Not by rules, not by asceticism, but primarily through faith and repentance, which find ways to flee from temptation. Weary of the battle with sin? I hope you are. Come and find rest in Jesus who fights for you. Let's pray because I've gone on too long today. Father, uh, we're all there. We're, we're all struggling with these sinful desires. We're, we're, we're all weary of the battle with the sin that comes so easily to us and entangles us so readily. We haven't arrived, but we thank you that Jesus has made a way, that Jesus um, provides a way out through faith and repentance, uh, that that Jesus works in us by that, that spirit so that we can start to say no. 
And we ask that in increasing measure, we would follow the Spirit in saying no to those desires that rise up that are contrary to your, to your law and which seek to ruin us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.